How great thou art. Today we're going to be talking about an aspect of the greatness of God. I hope that we can grow in our appreciation of the greatness. But that song has special significance, especially between Micah and I. Uh, For each of my kids, I had a song that I would sing to them while I would rock them uh, to sleep. And for him, it was How Great Thou Art. It was the song, for those of you that were at our wedding, it was a song that we had uh, performed and I even had students from my youth group up here uh, kind of performing a drama along with it. It's, it's a song that's dear to our hearts. So when I had my first child, it would be the song that naturally came to my mind. Micah knew that song from very young. Uh, he thought it was a song about him because I always said it was his song. He would say, oh, Lord, Micah. <laughs> it's not Micah. It's, oh, Lord, my God. We're not singing about you. We're singing about him, how great thou art. So... Uh, it's special that we get to perform it uh, as his first opportunity to play publicly. He's been playing for about two years since we came back from Ethiopia, and he's doing great. So he will surpass me one day if he keeps up with it, but I'm proud of him. Of the nearly 7,000 languages in the world today, did you know that over 300 of them are sign languages for deaf communities scattered all over the world? Also. Did you know that more than 70% of the spoken languages are actually tonal languages? Like gumus, if you say the word kicha and you say the word kicha, it means two very different things, basket and honey, two very different things. If you say ma and ma, in Mandarin, Chinese, it can mean horse or mother. And those aren't ones that you want to mix up. (laughs) Tonal languages are all over the place. Maybe you may say to yourself, well, I I don't really understand the tone thing. I'm just going to pronounce this language and hope that the tones don't uh, get too messed up. I can get along okay with that, right? Well, in some languages you can. You can mess up the tones because language is more of a periphery feature in those languages. In other languages, however, mother and horse, for example, you have to pay attention to the tones. In fact, some languages, tone is so much a feature of the word that they can throw away all the rest of the word and leave only the tones behind. If you don't believe me, you should Google whistled languages sometimes. Uh, Some languages, the whistle itself, just the tone, can carry the meaning for that particular community. Especially in farming or mountainous communities, they reduce their language to whistles because it travels much further than the spoken language. They can use it for herding animals or for hunting. Fascinating. What's even more fascinating, however, though, is that the human mind can process those whistles and recreate the expanded form of the language in their mind from them. What's even more fascinating than that is the creative God who created both the language and the minds, these supercomputers, to process and creatively use language. Unfortunately, God didn't send Andrew and I to translate scripture among a whistling language, but then again, maybe that's okay, because I'm not real good at the type of whistling they do with their fingers like this. Can anyone do that? There we go. That's a good one. <laughs> didn't? There you go, yeah. There are other types of whistles as well. Some, some people can whistle with their, their lips rounded like this. Can you do that? Oh, that's nice. No. Another type of whistling is when you have uh, the tip of your tongue. See, I I teach phonetics. I think about what happens inside the mouth. Tip of your tongue up against the roof of your mouth. It sounds like this. Can you do that? 
A lot of no's. Come on. Oh, man. You're not going to be very good this today then, because here's why. That sound is really ingrained in my mind from when I was a child. Whenever one of us would go into the refrigerator and we would bump against the cellophane, that crinkly wrapper that would hold the lettuce, we would hear that coming from the other room. See, we had an animal that spoke that whistling language. Any idea what animal that was? A guinea pig. <laughs> it was the guinea pig. We would hear that anytime you bump up against the lettuce and she was communicating something really important to us. <laughs> Give me some lettuce. Now that's just a long and fun introduction for me to introduce to you your role this morning as my guinea pigs. You see, as many of you know, two years ago Andrew and I transitioned into new roles. Um, Andrew's serving in member care and me uh, with scripture checking as well as teaching at Moody Bible Institute. This coming fall I have the privilege of teaching a brand new class to me, which means I've been reading a ton on language and society, so, or sociolinguistics. This morning I've decided to share with you a bit of the foundation on which I'm building that class, uh, what I call the theology of language. So we're going to open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 11, one of the key passages, one of the most famous passages on language in all of Scripture, the Tower of Babel. But we're going to then jump back in Scripture. We're going to look at language as it's in its source, in its purpose, why it was given, and then lastly, in its power, as we see in that story. Ultimately, we're going to understand and appreciate that language is not a trivial matter in our everyday lives. So beginning in chapter 11 of Genesis, we read this. 11. Why am I in chapter 9? I don't know. Chapter 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found the plain of Shinar. They settled there. They said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see their city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan will, to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the, lo the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that this scene, even here today, would not be babble, would not be confusion. We pray for clarity as we open your word, as we look into it, as we ask the question of what is language in our everyday lives, and appreciate it as the gift that you gave to us. May it then lead us to give glory to you as the giver of good gifts, all to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you'll notice in this passage here in Genesis 11, it begins how we expect all narrative texts to begin. It sets the scene. Sometimes there's a tendency to skip over the introductory verses to get to the meat of the story, but many times, actually the way that the scene is set is the most important, one of the most important keys to understanding the passage. 
In this case, the opening could have connected us to the previous passage in a temporal way, giving us how many years had passed since the last event. Or it could have connected us to some of the characters in the Noah flood story by telling how the Babel story, one particular person in that genealogy of chapter 10, links into the Babel story, but it didn't do that either. Rather, it sets the scene in a rather abrupt way with a focus on one language, notably that the whole world spoke that one common language. In fact, this existence of the common language is mentioned not just there in this opening, but also twice here we see down in the Lord's words as he laments the pride-filled project that the people had undertaken. He says, if as one people speaking the same language, they'd begun to do this, then nothing they planned to do would be impossible for them. So what's going on here? What's wrong with building a tower? I don't think anything's wrong with, the, with building, but everything is wrong with their motivation. If you look in verse 4, it says, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we may be scattered over the whole face of the earth. Two things to note quickly. First, build ourselves a city so that we may make a name for ourselves. Both point to a pride, which is directly opposed to God's command given to Adam and then again to Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, the opposite of scattered, right? It seems that these people, fueled by pride, want to directly reject God's command to spread out over the whole earth. And that's where the problem lies. It may also be that the tower reaching to the heavens may have been an attempt to dethrone God from his rightful position of authority. If that's the case, that would be the ultimate sin, not unlike Lucifer himself, who committed, which he committed when he attempted to overthrow God's sovereign rule. Finally, given the way this story uh, has been set up with focus on common speech, it's no surprise that the confusion or the division of the single language into multiple unintelligible languages is the means by which God expresses his sovereign transcendence in stopping the people from continuing toward their goal and instead forcing them to obey his earlier command that they, that they scatter, that they fill the earth. In the last two verses, it says not once, but twice, and the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. Now, what is it about language that gives it the primary place in this story? To answer that question, I want to step back, back and look at the language itself, where it came from, and what the purpose is. Help me out here. According to Scripture, where does, where does spoken language first occur in the Bible? Genesis 1, not 1, not 2, but 3. And who's the one doing the speaking? God's doing the speaking. God said, let there be light. The creative act itself is a spoken word of God. Language originates from God before mankind was even created. It's no wonder that this is so, for languages of the world are so incredibly complex that secular linguists stretch and manipulate and twist their abstract theories to great extremes in, order to, in an attempt to describe all that's going on in this incredibly complex thing we call language. Um, it's akin to an ophthalmologist trying to detail exactly how a human eye works, 
or astronomers trying to explain the vastness of the universe. And yet that immensely complex process of language is occurring at lightning fast speeds in my mind as I speak right now. And it's also occurring in reverse in your mind as you listen and understand what I'm saying. Consider as well the incredible ease with which our children learn language. Yes, our kids spend a lot of time in, in elementary school learning to spell correctly, but spelling is only learning to represent our spoken language with visual symbols, nothing more than that. What about the far greater complexity of acquiring the use of ordered sounds to represent meaning in the first place? And yet that amazingly complex thing called language is soaked up like a sponge in our children's mind beginning from birth. It's no wonder to me that just as the eye and the universe in all their complexity reveal their creator to be God, so also language reveals its creator, its source, as being God as well. So language originating from God was then given as a gift to mankind. But for what purpose? Secular linguists ask a similar question and often come to similar conclusions as what we see occurring in Scripture. One of the purposes of language, obviously, is to transfer information from one person to another. In the creation story, we see God passed very important information to Adam and Eve through language, giving them commands such as, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. We also can appreciate how God transferred information about who he is through his written word, the Bible. Another form of this idea of transferring information is that language gives humans the unique ability to transfer our experience to another person. When we go to the doctor, we, he may ask us, where does it hurt? Or how would you rate your pain? My brother, who's a veterinarian, would love to be able to ask such questions of his patients. But he doesn't have such a privilege. Unless it's Dr. Doolittle, right? he, had, he had a gift. Or, if I witness someone stealing your car, for example, my eyewitness testimony is powerful, but without language for me to express the experience that I saw, the best I can do is bark, 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 as someone drives off in your car, right? The idea of being able to relate one's experience to another is moving us in the direction of what secular linguists say is the ultimate purpose of any conversation, that being to establish and maintain relationship with one another. In the Garden of Eden, God engaged with mankind only by use of language. We see him walking in the garden, calling out for Adam and Eve and engaging them in conversation. See, language exists in community and is the means by which God connected with humanity and thus can be seen a gift from God that we might connect with him and with each other. Beyond that, not only did God give us the ability to use language, but he actually entrusted the creative process of developing language to mankind. We see this in Genesis chapter 2, where, where God asks Adam to name the animals. This event is fascinating as God allows Adam to build new words into the language, which seems to point back to the first chapter of Genesis, where God himself is naming things in the creation. He created light, called it light. He separated the light from the darkness, he called them day and night. He separated the waters from above and the waters below, he called them sky uh, and sea. 
Adam is now giving the privilege of naming other things, other created things, thus continuing the process that God started in creation. In doing so, he's imitating or he's reflecting God in his actions. But this shouldn't surprise us either when we remember that mankind was made in the image of God, resembling God in his essence and in his action. In ancient Hebrew culture, the act of naming something could not be done by just anyone, but rather only by the one who had authority to do so. And what gives Adam this authority? This dominion over creation? Genesis 1.26 ties the privilege of ruling to being created in the image of God. Genesis 1.26 says this, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and so on. Mankind was made to be like God so that they may rule. So then in chapter 2, we see Adam naming the animals and the, as an intersection between language as expressing dominion in the image of God. But I can think of the connection of language and the image of God be taken even one step further. Track with me here. It appears from Genesis 1.26 that the image of God is related to the position of ruling, of authority, of dominion over creation. Another word for God's rule, is, in which we reflect in, his, in our relation to creation, is his sovereign transcendence. To speak of transcendence is to speak about something or him being above his creation, not in a physical distance sort of way, but in quality of being. A.W. Tozer, in one of my favorite books called The Knowledge of the Holy, gives this illustration of transcendent worth. He says, A little child strays from a party of sightseers and becomes lost on a mountain, and immediately the whole mental perspective of the members of the party has changed. Rapt admiration for the grandeur of nature gives way to acute distress for this lost child. What, about, what brought about such sudden change? The tree-clad mountain is still there towering into the clouds in breathtaking beauty, but no one notices it now. All attention is focused on the curly-haired little girl who is not yet two years old, weighing less than 30 pounds. Though so new and so small, she is more precious to the parents and the friends than all the huge bulk of the vast and ancient mountain they had been admiring just a few minutes earlier. In their judgment, and the whole civilized world concurs, for that little girl, uh, the, for that little girl can love, can laugh, can speak, and can pray, and the mountain can do none of them. It is the child's quality of being that gives her worth. Tozer paints a picture of this girl's worth and quality uh, transcending that of the mountain. But even that's an imperfect picture of God's true transcendence. For Tozer goes on to say, we must grant God transcendence in the fullest meaning of the word. He is as high above the archangel as he is above the caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel and the caterpillar is but finite, and the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. For if we are God's image bearers and tasked to reflect God in his essence and in his action, including his transcendent rule over all of creation, how are we to do that? I would suggest that human language is one of the key tools that God gave us, equipping us to reflect a measure of God's transcendence over the rest of creation. In what way does human language help us transcend or rise above the rest of creation? After all, animals can communicate a little, can't they? Yeah, 
Animals can communicate. Dogs can bark or whine to express their emotion, but they can't discuss with you why that squirrel cannot be tolerated loitering in the backyard. <laughs> Dolphins can squeak and whistle and slap the water with their fins to communicate that they're hungry or they want to play, but they can't complain about yesterday's tuna tasting rather fishy. Bees, bees are amazing. They do this dance that can amazingly communicate to other bees about the amount of pollen as well as the distance and direction from the hive that they must fly. But they can't strategize for how to stop humans from stealing their golden treasure. All secular linguists agree, human language is something completely different than animal communication. It's not just more complex or systematic, as if it's further down some evolutionary road. Human language is of a different quality altogether. Whole, human language uses words to represent or package together whole concepts. These packages become categories with which, we, with which we make sense of the world around us. With them, we can then detach ourselves from the here and now of present experience to create a form of transcendence. Theologian Vern Sheridan Pythress says in his book, In the Beginning Was the Word, he says this, Human beings have the ability to stand back from their immediate situation and look at larger wholes. They can even think about the whole of history. In this ability, they imitate God, who has complete knowledge of himself and all of history. So our ability in thought and language reflects the fact that we are made in the image of God. We can put it another way. We can say, in a sense, we can, in a sense, transcend the immediacy of our local situation and imagine the whole of our situation as it might look from above. This ability for transcendence, possible through language, imitates or reflects a greater transcendence that belongs only to God. Equipped with God's gracious gift of human language, mankind can uniquely package its world. We can step back in order to assess and evaluate a situation. We can strategize and formulate plans of action, create and explore new innovations. We can weigh the pros and cons of any possible alternatives and make wise decisions as, it carry, as we carry out our role in caring for the created world that God put under our rule. But let us return, however, as with any good gift, uh, it can be used for evil as well. Let us return to Genesis chapter 11 with new insight into how language played an important role in this story. The story began with and reiterated the fact that the whole world was united with a common language. Now, since one of the primary purposes of language is to build and deepen relationship within a community, it's no surprise that the community at Babel was tight-knit, having pulled together and now able to work together in pursuit of a common goal. We don't feel it as much here in the U.S. where English is of high prestige, but in multilingual communities, if I'm walking through a marketplace and I hear some, many different languages around me, but all of a sudden I, my ear latches on to someone speaking my mother tongue, I immediately know that I have community with that person. They're my relative. They're my brother. I can trust them. A common language is a relational superglue that can build unity within a community. And thus it's not a surprise that the common language in Babel enabled them to work together in powerful ways. Human language, language's empowerment of mankind to transcend is also here at play in this story. 
As the people of Babel gather together, they step back. They assess their situation. They strategize a plan not only to rule over the created order in the way that God commanded them, but also to make a name for themselves and potentially to overthrow God's transcendent rule in the tower that reaches to the heavens. It's pride and its power, cemented and fueled by the common language, gone to their heads. However, when we, what we see in God's response confirms our thinking about language. By dividing the people of Babel into diverse, unintelligible language groups, God shattered that unity. He broke their ability to step back and transcend their situation, thus working together toward their pride-filled goal became impossible. We see then in this result the power that language had given the people at Babel. Now they're totally disarmed. And the ruins of that unfinished tower stood for generations as a testimony of God's ultimate transcendence and sovereignty even over the good gifts that he gave us. As I close, I wonder how God views our use of language today. This powerful gift given to equip us as we fulfill our role uh, in creation, allowing us to have deep relationship with him and with each other, allowing us to step back, to transcend the here and now, to package huge concepts, complicated things, into a single word, such as the word universe. With the simple word universe, it's seven sounds and three syllables, we can encapsulate the vastness of the whole created expanse and thus talk about it, thus evaluate it, thus put it into our, our, uh, our thinking. So also with abstract concepts like love and hate or justice and injustice or equality and equity or even small little pronouns like he, she, they, these are huge packages of meaning that we use in order to represent our reality. Packages of meaning, the building blocks through which we organize and then understand our world. And with these packages, we can step back, assess, and think in these categories that then lead ourselves and all of creation on the path of righteousness found in the character of God. But how are we doing? That is, we, the church, Using, are we using language and community to build one another up, to establish and maintain relationship and unity? Or is language the primary weapon that we use in creating further division and rivalry? Very powerful weapon at that. Are we using the gift to lead our society in, into obedience and worship of our God? Or are we using its potency, its power, to make a name for ourselves in the towers that we build? See, sections of our society are currently fighting against biblical values, as they always have, trying to import or input, download their own ideologies into them, their own concepts of reality, and they're very wise in their attempt to redefine words in doing so, harnessing the innate power that language has. For if traditional words can take on new meaning and represent new categories, it is within those categories that reality will then be defined. Language is not a trivial matter. For God designed it to be that powerful tool and entrusted it to us that it might be used to establish and maintain deep relationships with him as well as with each other. May we not follow the Babylonian example and allow that powerful gift to be the very vehicle that drives us and our community away from him or worse yet, 
into battle against him. Would you pray with me? Father, you are a gracious and good God. We cannot fathom the, the goodness of, of, uh, of your creative act as you created us in your image that we might represent and rule over the created world as you rule over us. We thank you for the gift of language, the beauty of being able to use it in, in its, its glorious purpose of building relationship and connecting with you, knowing who you are through your word, through conversation with you. We thank you for the power that it has as it, it unites people um, in the relationship as you intended it to. But we pray that as language is at, the, is at the heart of many of the things that are dividing our society even now, that the church would rise, that the church would speak with clarity um, using the gift that you gave us and the power that it contains to guide our society, to guide our, our children and our future towards the righteousness that you call us to do as we lead and rule over creation as your image bears. Thank you for Bethel and the ways that you've let, allowed them to be that light shining into the Jackson community and beyond. We pray that you continue to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.